This morning, turn with me to Mark, the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 3, and verse 13. We've kind of been in Matthew as a majority as we've been kind of trucking through the life of Jesus, looking at the different episodes in Jesus' life that really reveal to us the light of God. Remember, we're in this season of Epiphany. Epiphany meaning revealing. And so it's the revealing from darkness to light. And uh, this is why the color for this season is green. It's because just like in the winter, it's darker, it's overcast. But in the springtime, like what the weather looks like, like out there today, it's light. And that's when life comes back. Your grass is going to start coming to life soon, which I'm pumped about. I actually am one who likes to cut grass um, and have my grass look nice and green. So... Uh, nonetheless, this is the color of Epiphany because we're moving from overcast, from darkness, evil to light. The light of Christ. Not just prophets, not just you know priests, but instead Jesus Christ, God Himself, comes into our world to be the light of the world. And so we've been looking at different episodes in His life and seeing how that reveals the very nature of God. Today is no different. We're going to pick up really in the sequence of things Remember, he gets uh, baptized, he gets tempted, and then he uh, calls his disciples. Notice this in chapter 3, and verse, picking up in verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles so that they might be with Him, and He might send them out to preach, and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom He gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom He gave the name uh, Bonagris, (laughs) that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus the son, uh, and Simon the zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Let us pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. Bless now this reading of Your Word to our hearts. Show us how we too might be called of You to be Your disciple, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Are you a disciple of Jesus? It's a uh, simple question. And yet, you would probably say, of course I am. And probably people around you would say, oh yeah, that old chap, to use an English kind of a term there, that old chap is, is, is Christian. He's a disciple of Christ. But according to our own definition or according to other people's definition, that's not what I'm asking. I'm asking you, are you a disciple of Jesus Christ based upon the words in the Bible that we can trust as our authority? Not on your authority, not on someone else's authority, but on the authority of the Word of God. And in your actions, are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? It's a good question. It's a good question. Um, and it's one we want to explore today in the, in the context of these few verses in Mark. Mark really has a way of distilling down his, what he's going to say into, into bare bones. 
He is not elaborate. He doesn't use fluff. If you know what fluff, you ever writ, written papers in English or back in school, they call that fluff when you get to page six and you need to be at page eight and you just add a bunch of stuff in there to try to fluff it up. Mark is not doing any kind of fluff in his writing. He's bare bones as far as his approach. And so we get just a few verses here of Jesus calling the twelve. Now, Matthew and uh, also Luke have the same calling, except theirs has extended versions. We're looking here at this one in, in, in Mark. Now, I just want to draw a couple things out here. The, one of the first things is this. He went up on a mountain. It says it right here, 13. Very first verse we read. He went up on a mountain. Now, we've seen him do this before, right? Sermon on the Mount. He ascends a mountain. Here he ascends a mountain. We're not told which one. That's not the important part here. But this again is a way of separating himself from normal life. Uh, The reason people go to the mountains is to get away. The reason you get up to a high place on a journey is so that you can see far. In other words, if you're trekking through Middle Earth in Lord of the Rings... You need to get to an elevated position so that you can see further down the line. If you're on a camping trip, uh, if you're on a mountain, you can see things in the far distance. Now, once you go back down uh, into the mix of all of life, really, you're going to be on the same plane as everything else. You're not going to be able to have that extra view out. And so directionally, it's tougher when you're down on ground level than it is when you're up on the mountaintop. And so interestingly, the mountain, mountains have always been used as a place to meet with God, a place to separate yourself from the, from the normalcy of life, the, the day-to-day events. You get above that. It's quieter up on the mountain. Uh, when, you, when, you, when, you go, when people go to the mountains, they're trying to escape all the busyness of your typical life. And maybe this is what Jesus is doing as well. Now, the pagans would have used the mountains as well, but their reasoning behind using mountains was quite different than what the Bible gives to us. Theirs is to get closer to the gods. Um, What we have here from Jesus is the fact that He is ascending this mountain to get away because uh, Luke will tell us that He went up there and He prayed all night long and then He made His decision on who the twelve would be. Now, he called the disciples to him, which disciples mean more than just the twelve. But as it says here, he chose out of the disciples twelve whom he appointed. So he elected twelve when he could have chosen any number. Why did he go with a dozen? Why did he go with this number twelve? And again, we're brought back to the Old Testament, right? So again, you connect it back in. Jesus is not coming just doing some random stuff. Instead, He is coming to fulfill everything that the Old Testament has left unfulfilled. In the Old Testament, you have a nation that has been brought to its knees. They've gone through exile, and there's only one tribe left, and that's the tribe of Judah. That's it. The rest of them are gone obliterated, never seen again. You remember the tribes in the north, which was the most of them, uh, once the Assyrians come in in 722 finally and take them out, they're never seen again. That's what happens in exile. You don't come back from exile. When you get exiled, you assimilate. 
When you assimilate, your name disappears. Your ethnicity disappears. You become Assyrian. So there were no Jews anymore. They were called in that region Samaritans. Remember those guys? Which were half-breeds. They weren't fully Jewish. So, in the Bible, this number 12 keeps creeping in just like the number 40. We've seen that before. 40 days he was tempted. What's the significance of that? Well, 40 years in the wilderness. They were tempted in the wilderness. So, 40 represents a symbolic number of temptation, of testing. Whereas the number 12 is hope. You remember that Jacob marries, um, a long story short, he marries two ladies. Um, He got tricked, remember? His name means trickster. (laughs) And yet now the trickster gets tricked, right? And so he wakes up and instead of Rachel, it's Leah. And so he works another seven years for Rachel, Now, interestingly, Rachel apparently was the more beautiful one, and yet Leah was the more productive one, if you know what I mean. Uh, She had more children. Uh, Out of the twelve sons of Jacob, Leah had the most. Uh, You also have a couple from their their maidservants, but nonetheless, uh, Leah produces most of the twelve tribes. Rachel produces as well, but... Uh, but two only. And so, in the, in the mix of things, God is blessing the one who had it rougher, apparently, than the other. And so, and that's, that's a whole other story. We won't get into that today. There's a lot to do with, with what's going on here in any typical passage. And it's, uh, Roosevelt once said, uh, they asked him, he said, Sir, how long does it take you to, to prepare an hour-long speech? He said, normally you can double the time, so two hours. Um, they asked him, he said, well, what about a two-minute speech? Two days. When you have to distill something down into two minutes, it's tougher. Mark is able to do that here. When he ascends the mountain, when he calls the twelve, he's wanting you to see a lot more than what is being said here. And so this number twelve is first used with the sons of Jacob who become the twelve tribes of Israel which are to be the hope of the nations. That's the reason God called them. That's the reason God made them His special people was not to just segregate them from the rest of the world or to separate them from the rest of the world, but rather to make them a light to the nations. Again, if you read Isaiah, who really is the prophet premier, he really sets the stage for the prophets, what you're going to realize about Isaiah's call to Israel is he is calling them to be a light. And they are not being that light. And so what does God do? He goes ahead and extinguishes that light and brings in His own light, which is Himself. Which is why in Isaiah you get the messianic prophecies coming about so strongly is because Israel was not the light they were designed to be. So God has to come and basically says, look, I'm going to have to do this myself. And He does. He is the true light. They were to be a light. And so that's what I'm saying about this number 12. Is In the Old Testament, this 12 number represents hope. Hope for the world. Now, where else does 12 come up? Not just with the 12 tribes, but also, guess what? The 12 minor prophets. They're not minor because they're less important than the major ones. They're minor just in uh, uh, content. They don't have as much uh, as, say, Isaiah. Isaiah 66 chapters. Uh, most of the minor prophets are a chapter or two. 
So they're called the twelve, which are the prophets you get at the very end of your Old Testament, ending with Malachi. And they're just simply called the twelve. So again, this number 12 represents hope because the prophets represented hope. They were saying to them, you can still repent. You don't have to die. You don't have to leave this situation. This situation can be made better if only you would repent. Of course they don't. But these people represented hope. Twelve. And then now when Jesus appoints, elects, calls these twelve men immediately we ought to recognize this is a number of hope. Now, there's one other place where this number 12 comes up, and that's in the Apocalypse, Revelation. And it's a number of splendor. So again, hope is represented in this dozen. Now, what is Jesus doing here besides ascending a mountain, praying all night long, and now calling these 12 guys what He tells you? And less implicitly, he's becoming, as I said before, he's becoming the new Moses as he's ascending the mountain and basically reinterpreting the law. But he's also becoming here the new Jacob. Now follow me. Jacob had 12 sons. Now Jesus calls 12 men to be a new light to the nations which will be the church. Did we not just say in our apostolic line, the Apostles' Creed? That's what we're saying. We're saying we're lining up with these 12 apostles. Now, there's a whole other thing here with disciple and apostle. You say, what's the difference there? (laughs) That's a 40-minute discussion, but I'll bring it down to one minute and just simply say there are no more apostles today because apostles actually followed Jesus directly in, in in the physical Okay. Now, apostles simply means sent one, so in a sense we're all apostles. But in another sense, no one takes the place of those 12 guys. And everything... Remember what our reading was just then from, uh, I believe it was 1 Corinthians? Jesus is always the foundation. But then right after Jesus, you get the apostles. And we come subsequently way up the skyscraper of apostolicity. If you want to use a big word. Um, so, all of this is interconnected. All of this is designed. This is not happenstance. Some people, I feel like, they read the Bible and they think that the things that Jesus is saying, the things that Jesus is doing, just kind of ah, willy-nilly. I think I'll pick some disciples today. Ah, Twelve sounds good. No. No, 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 no. This is all designed. Everything that we have here is revelation. Revelation from God. We need to know it if we are His disciple. Remember what I said at the beginning? The first question? Are you a disciple? A disciple will study the teachings of his master. Do we? So, Jesus here, interestingly, you remember what happens to Jacob, right? He lays down on a rock, which is not the best pillow, and has a dream. Has an odd dream. He sees a staircase, what's called Jacob's Ladder, right? That goes up to heaven. He sees angels descending and ascending. <laughs> Jesus comes and He now is not only the new Moses, not only the high priest, not only the good shepherd, all these images from the Old Testament that He is redefining. But now He's also the new 
Jacob who brings about a new Israel who is the church. (laughs) And so in John, the Gospel of John, Jesus tells Nathanael, He says, you're going to see angels descending and ascending the Son of Man. What did He just do? He connected Himself to Jacob. From the temple to the sacrifices, to Abraham, to Moses, to the prophets, to the priests. Everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus Christ. And He fulfills every single last point to the T, to the dotted I. Everything. Which is also an argument for His divinity, by the way. No one even trying to fulfill all the promises in the Old Testament could have possibly made the events of of his life turn out in the way that they did. It's mathematically impossible. And yet, it happened. Why? Because he's the Messiah. He's the King. He's the true King. He is the center of the Bible because the Old Testament's directly pointing to Him, and so too is the New Testament. He is our Savior. He is our Lord. He's our Master. Now notice this. And He appointed twelve, whom He also named apostles, which apostle means sent one. So that... Now, when you get to that kind of thing in literature, you know that He's giving an explanation. So that they might be... With him. All right. Now again, <laughs> you say, "What you know?" When I was first working on this message, I'm saying, "What is a disciple?" And I'm writing a thousand different things. I'm like, "Yeah, oh, and we need this, and oh, we need that. I need to make sure they." Basically, Jesus says, "Look, you can't do that in a sermon. Come on, it's impossible. It's going to take a lifetime." Which is what Jesus gave, wasn't it? He gave his life. You have to follow around someone to be their disciple. What is the first call that Jesus calls them to? Not to do something, but rather to be something. To be with Him. Now this is not original to me, but I think it's helpful. I read a quote the other day that said, We are not human doings, but human beings. It's important. It's important. We must first be with Jesus and not just do for Jesus. Trust me, I've been in the trap of doing for God and saying, is that enough for you? That's no way to live. That's the Pharisees' way to live. We do these things not for God, but for ourselves, for prestige, for whatever selfish reason we do it. First, The call to be a disciple is very simple. It's a call to be with Jesus. Now again, I just ask you, like I ask myself, have you been with Jesus this week? Can can you actually say that you've been with Him this week? If you can't, you need to ask that question again. Am I a disciple? Not what other people are saying. Not what you're saying. What is your life saying? Have you been with Jesus? Because that's the first call. People, people, you know, come come to me at school a lot of times. They say, Man, I don't know what I'm supposed to do in life. I, you know, this or that. 
and, and in life as a pastor, you get, get people who are trying to make life decisions. I learned when I was trying to do the same thing that most of all, no matter which way you go in certain decisions, be with Jesus. That sounds, that sounds simple, but that's the primary call. You can be with Jesus being an architect or an engineer or a garbage man or a landscaper or a missionary. People lay before me a lot of things say, what should I do? You be with Jesus. That's what is most important is keeping Him. For, no other gods before me. No other jobs before me. <laughs> he calls them to be with Him. <laughs> and isn't that the deepest reason and purpose of life? That is the reason for life. Say, so why am I here? I just don't know what I'm supposed to be. You're supposed to be with Jesus. You can do a host of other jobs. And again, without Him, it's not going to turn out well for you. But you can do some really whatever, mundane jobs, and be with Him? Look at Mother Teresa. No one would, by business success, would ever say that she did anything in life. She was poor. Even though she could have been very rich. And yet she hung out with the poor, with the needy, with the lepers. Touched them. We still have images burned in our head of her reaching out. That wrinkly face of hers. Why? Because that's the kind of life of someone who's been with Jesus. That must be us if we're to be a disciple. We must be with Him. I hope you're hearing me. I'm repeating it on purpose. We must be with Jesus. There's no better way to say it than right here. You say, what is the disciple? It's being with Jesus. Now, He doesn't stop there though. (laughs) Once you've been with Jesus then He's going to rub off on you. You ever notice, uh, you know, I'm an NFL fan, so when I'm watching, <laughs> I, always, I always find it comical that when Drew Brees, you know, maybe throws an interception, goes over there, he's frustrated. Guess who's right by his side? Not only the quarterback coach, but guess who else? His disciple. <laughs> you know, the backup quarterback. He's got the earbud in. He's been listening to the whole game. He's right there looking over the notes with Drew Brees. I'm thinking, that would be so annoying for me, you know. I just messed up, and now some little dude's over here wanting to learn from my mess up. That's not what I'm looking for. I mean, sometimes my kids get on my nerves for that reason, you know. Um, and yet, don't we need to watch people even when they mess up to see how they respond? Maybe when you mess up, that's the best place to know who you are. Do you try to cover it up? Do you try to lie your way out of it? Or are you honest and ask for forgiveness? Are you honest and go back to the books and start showing the right way? Say, hey, that was on me. That was on me, guys. Maybe sometimes, you know, when we don't want to be watched, it's actually more telling of our character than when we do want to be watched. It's easy to be Christian at church, you know. That's easy. But let's go live with you for a little while. Let's spend the week with me for a little bit. You know, that's what I always tell my students at Cal. I say, "Hey, you, you know, you may have a perception of me, but but you don't know me. You know, that's you don't know me. Um, if if they came to live with me, they probably wouldn't think the same things. 
Um, and that's okay. That's all right. Um, we are called to be with Jesus, and then after we've been with Him a little while, learn from Him what He's going to do is send us out. Always. Every single one of us is meant to be sent out. Notice what He does. He says, so that they might be with Him, and He might send them out to preach and to cast out demons. That's, whoo, that's pretty heavy, isn't it? Casting out demons? Anybody know that was part of your job description here? And what, what might that mean? Well, in, in Mark in particular, he's very concerned with the spiritual world. If you read his gospel, Jesus is constantly casting out demons, uh, running into this sort of thing. And so, in, in our world, what does that mean? It means casting out gods from our life. False gods from our life. It means bringing light to darkness. That's what it means. Wherever there's darkness, spiritual darkness, whether it's at school, at your work, in your family, you bring light to those situations. That's exorcism. That's getting rid of the demons. That's getting rid of that spiritual darkness in the world. And trust me, if you think politics is corrupt and, and cunning and kind of devise, I mean, you know, these people literally just sit around and think up things about how to get stuff done their way. If you think that's bad, think about the spiritual world that hates you. Makes politics look like a joke. There are those who would sit around and think about how to trip us up. To lay traps for us, for you. To try to get us distracted. To try to create a diversion. To try to make you angry. There are many, but guess what? They are nothing. You don't have to fear them. You don't have to fear the spiritual world of darkness because the light has come. You know, Satan may roam about like a lion, right? Seeking whom he might devour, but you don't have any teeth. Nothing to do for you except for scare you. Bring fear to your life. Introduce doubt of God. That's it. He can't really bite you unless you let Him. Be gone, Satan. Isn't that what Jesus says? Be gone, Satan. And He's gone. Resist the devil and what? He will flee. We're not to be worried about the spiritual world of darkness, but we are to cast light into that world. Bring light wherever we go. That is our mandate. We are called to be with Jesus and move out and be sent into His world with the authority to preach, mainly with our lives. That's most people's calling. Uh, but then also to cast light. He's given us authority to do both. It's His authority. By the way, in Mark, He's already proven His authority to preach. They've already been wowed by His preaching and His message, and they've already been wowed by the fact that He can cast out demons. And now He gives that same authority to the church. That's our job. That's our, that's our mission. So, here's the last thing is, we are called, and that's important, we are called. Not just you, not just I, but we. We're a team. We must act like a team. Even if you don't feel like it, you're on a team. 
in the church, we're a team. Not everybody's a player on the team. Not everybody gives their best. But we're still called to this team. This team is called to be holy. This team is called to be perfect. That's what we've already heard this morning from our readings. Be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. We're all in the same boat. There's to be unity in this team. Not uniformity. Notice, in that listing of names, not everybody has the same name. Some of them have some really weird names. But they also are not the same. Some of them are zealots. Uh, Some of them are fishermen. Some of them are tax collectors. Sinners. And yet, they didn't look the same. They didn't come from the same backgrounds. And yet, they were one. A unity. The twelve. The apostles. The church. This is us. We are called to not only love Jesus, but to love each other. And love the world as He loved the world. Jesus in His high priestly prayer, lastly, He prays and He says, Father, I pray that they are one as we are one. That's important. God is a oneness, isn't He? That doesn't just mean He's numerical one. It means He's three persons and yet one God because He's three persons. Just like a team, we say, we're unified, we're ready to take this. Or, or a unit in the military. Uh, you know, the army slogan, army of one. Not just one individual. It's a unity. We are called to be a unity as the church. We must strive for it. We must pray for it. Jesus prayed for it before He left. This was the last, John 17, that's the last prayer he, that we have recorded of His. And He prays for us in that prayer. Directly prays for us, the followers of His disciples. And He prays that we might be one. We must pray for that too. We're called to be with Jesus. Are you? Have you been this week? You're called to be sent out. Have you done that? Have you been preaching with your life? with your words, with your actions. And then lastly, we're called to be one, just like the twelve. They weren't known just as individuals, they were known as the twelve. We must lose ourself, and the best way to do that is love. When you love someone, you're not thinking about yourself. It's the only way to lose yourself. If we don't, We'll get ourselves in the end, and that's what hell is. Hell is just getting yourself. We don't want that. Love Jesus Christ today. Become His disciple. It's very simple. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow Him. At the cross is where you become a disciple. Do you know His cross? Have you taken up your cross? If not, you can today. That's the good news. You can make Him your Lord. He's calling your name. He's electing you. Will you respond? I hope you will. Amen.